Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, DJs and DJs of the future. This episode of the podcast is supported by Doing the Damage, the only DJ pool focused exclusively on house and dance music. Supplying the best remixes, bootlegs, mashups and exclusive promos from their global network of DJs, producers and labels. Check it out now at doingthedamage.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on Mixcloud. Simply search Felix Leiter in the house. In this episode, I talk to John Gibbons, a stone-cold Irish dance music legend. Fiercely intelligent and entrepreneurial from a young age, his love of music and ability to not only entertain a crowd, but also build brands and execute production at his shows was evident from a young age. We could have talked for hours, but what you're about to listen to is podcast gold. So let's get right into it. Felix Leiter's In The House, the podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are. Yes, yes, we are live from a, do- a dogging spot in Dublin with John Gibbons. <laughs> he has been um, kind enough to pick me up from the airport. We have found a secluded spot. We are in his beautiful car and we're going to do a quick a quick pod. Um, it's it's going to be a quick one, so we're going to waste no time. First off, as we start the podcast every time, how did you get into music? No, sorry, where did you first remember hearing music? Was your mum playing it? Was your dad playing it? Is it radio? Just your first memories going right back to being like as young as you can remember. What music were you hearing and where was it coming from, sir? Well, I have some very early memories of music and the reason I know I was so young was because my parents moved house when I was about two and I have musical memories from the old house that I lived in first growing up, so somewhere between the age of naught and two. Um, I remember my mum constantly singing, like, songs, nursery rhymes, all that stuff. Like, it's really vivid. I don't have any other kind of memories from that time. I just remember anything that was music-related. So I remember songs like, this is mad, no one will probably ever have said this, but, like, The Wheels on the Bus and Baba Blackshee, all that stuff. I remember it so vividly. I can remember specific moments where I was sitting in certain chairs and had, like, a high chair, you know, to, to keep me in. And um, it, there, there was just constant music in the house. Now, neither of my parents were musicians per se and they weren't what you would call like particular music fanatics but there was always something going on in the background so um, acts like Fleetwood Mac and Dire Straits and Queen I was hearing those from a really really young age aside from (laughs) the nursery rhymes but I do have one particular memory and I don't know if it is the earliest of these but it was just extremely vivid Um, and it was there was a song called The Big Ship Sails on the Ali Ali O which my mum used to be plagued by me asking her to sing with me. Is and that a nursery rhyme? It's a, it's a kind of a nursery rhyme thing. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it's a, like, I know I was really, really young and my dad will always laugh about stuff like this because he hated all those nursery rhymes and all that kind of stuff. And again, I'd, I'd, I'd rope him into singing it. So if we were in the car, we'd be singing songs and all that kind of stuff. So again, from maybe the age of three or four, I was listening to bands like Fleetwood Mac and Dirt and not, not knowing what it was. But that just seemed to instill some sort of love for music that never went away, that was way above and beyond, say, what my friends growing up would have been into. Everyone had a favourite band or favourite songs and everyone was listening to the radio or whatever. But for me, it was different. I was always collecting music. I, I remember 
recording stuff on tape from the radio. I remember, like, from the age of about seven or eight, mimicking, I had, I had a radio station in my head, an imaginary radio station called GRS, Gibbons Radio Station. The imagination <laughs> was just, yeah. And, like, I was really young. I was in kind of, like, first junior infants like first and second year of school doing this and I'd no recording facilities but I was pretending to have a microphone and presenting introducing songs and all that kind of stuff um so fast forward a little bit Felix then to kind of when I was in secondary school say and I had already dabbled in radio there were a couple of competitions that ran on local radio that I had done well in so I'd done things like book reviews on the radio and again was exposed to that environment and the environment of music in a kind of formal setting or even a professional setting Um, and dance music came along and I remember hearing Snap Rhythm is a Dancer Yeah. and I hesitate to say that that song changed my life but that song changed my musical perspective and I thought right I need to hear more music like this what the hell is this now this was on the radio this was pop music at the time but I'd never heard music in that ilk and that style so I started to um, are you you, what you sort of early teenagers at this point I would have been probably around maybe yeah, like 11, 12, okay, okay, that kind so of that, age, yeah. like the start Teenager. of... Exactly, yeah, the start, <laughs> the start of secondary school. So, um, yeah, around that kind of age. And I remember going down... There were a couple of music shops in my hometown town of Carlow in Ireland, which is about an hour's drive south of Dublin. And there were two really big mainstream, like, chain music shops. And then there was this kind of slightly more underground one that sold a bit of vinyl and a lot of overpriced imported tapes and CDs as well and they had so what was that called? that was called the rock and pop shop okay yeah and I didn't really go in there I was a bit intimidated by it because they had a lot of a lot of like metal stuff and they used to sell t-shirts and there was a I think a tattoo place out the back and I just felt a bit intimidated by by that whole thing because I didn't really understand it like they'd sell patches of bands like ACDC and Megadeth and Metallica and all that kind of stuff for, for denim jackets you know yeah. the, the patches that yeah. used to be sold all that kind of I know of, the exact sort of shop you mean yeah and and they sadly don't exist as much as they used to those kind of shops well they, they certainly don't anywhere that I know of in no. Ireland and, and definitely not in Carlo but so anyway I plucked up the courage and went in with a mate um, because he had said look you can find dance music in there and in we went and had a chat with the person behind the counter who was kind of amused I I remember vividly he was kind of amused I think by these two really green fresh faced young lads coming in who just didn't look like ravers because unbeknownst to me the rave scene was at its height at this stage and I just I knew nothing about this it was kind of funny like have you got anything like rhythm as a dancer (laughs) so anyway directed me to this little section and uh, he said look you can have a listen um, on headphones to anything if, if you want to see if there's anything you like so I discovered Technotronic at this point and yep. there was an album called Trip On This and it was Trip On This the remixes right and it yep. was a little bit more expensive than the other ones I thought god that's expensive it must be good had a listen and that was it for me game over my mind was completely blown because I realised when I heard that album that I was aware of the song without realising what it was Pump Up The Jam yep. but this was a remix of it I didn't know what a can remix what, was what the remix was I have no idea idea. It's whatever was on that trip on this remixes album. Um, So there would have been kind of one of each of the main songs that were on the original album. Yeah. And I didn't know what a remix was, so all of a sudden my musical mission became about discovering how, like, where does this music come from? Is there more of it? And I started to eat and drink dance music. Now, allied with this, I was also listening to bands like Oasis and Blur and that Britpop scene. I mean, my love for kind of 
mainstream music continued allied with this so I had these two musical personas and it was funny because back then I don't know if it's still the same I don't think it is to the same extent but you had groups in school who were aligned by their musical tastes of course so you had the ravers and you had the um like it wasn't the punk or the mod scene but you had the rockers like yeah. or the metal heads and all, all this kind of stuff so I was I was hanging I discovered that I was suddenly hanging out with people who were mad into rave music who tended to be the lads who were a bit more streetwise than I would have been okay. and a bit more worldly say who I wouldn't normally have mixed with but suddenly found myself mixing with them through music yeah. and then there were all my other mates um, who I would have grown up with say and they were all listening to Oasis and Blur and all that kind of stuff so I was doing both and it's only looking back now that I realise my, my peer group was expanding as a result of music directly yeah. um, so on to DJing then and I was I was in a band at this point a band called Shine and we were we were amazing we weren't we were terrible I was the singer and that's why we were terrible so but, uh, let me let me. otherwise you're just going to finish the entire podcast uh, yeah yeah and I've answered all my questions <laughs> sorry sorry man. minutes so no it's great but let me just just pull you back to dive into a couple of little other bits before, sure. before we move on to it so we've kind of covered off the kind of the inception of like where you sort of first heard music and mm. I think what was one thing that really piqued my attention there when you said it was and it's something that happens to me all the time it's been happening to me all this morning on the way in the plane and a few other podcasts we brought it up is that what you said that was really interesting was that you even just can remember having these melodies and these Mm. nursery rhymes almost going around in your head and I think it's something that you know that musicians or DJs or people that love music tend to have like a lot of the time I don't have a thought process going on mm. I just have a, an 8 bar loop or a I 4 totally bar loop relate. Just, just, totally just relate, constantly yeah. going on in my head I've had like Return of the Space Cowboy all the way over on the plane just like yeah. a little loop of it um and obviously we've touched on like kind of you know hearing like uh, you know for you kind of quite a um you know a musical taste changing record in that in that snap record and i think what i was in just before you got into your sort of personal journey which obviously we'll get into is at what point because i find this really really fascinating at what point did you become aware of someone anyone being a DJ like was it on the radio was it had you been to a party did a mate have decks like mm -hmm. because you know it's really obvious for us to sit here now having both been in the industry for years to know about DJs and obviously in this day and age it's hard to grow up without knowing about DJs mm. but back then it wasn't as didn't seem quite as obvious so yeah that's my question is like at what point did you become aware of these people who were DJs um I, I realised after the fact that I had been aware of DJs without knowing specifically what they did because yeah. <laughs> at the time um, the, there was there was a really big dance music show on 2FM which is the national kind of youth station here in Ireland yeah. um, and the DJ who presented it was a guy called Mickey Mack Okay. And that was kind of the only source on the radio to listen to new dance music. And he was really groundbreaking. It was multi-genre. It was like a four-hour show. Okay. And multi-genre, as in as in dance he, music. He, like well, no, I I mean within okay, within so, dance music. So, it's so kind of a Pete Tongue esque type exactly. show. Okay, that, okay. He was the Irish Pete Tongue. Yeah. If you like exactly. And I didn't know he. I mean, he was talking about all these people who were making music and I just assumed they were people who were producers because yeah. obviously I, I knew what a producer was and but he referred to them as DJs and I did, there wasn't a separation between the two for me so I was hyper aware of people like Tony DeVitt yeah. um, Sasha Digweed people like that and I was I was actively buying their music so like the Global Underground series was huge for me and I, yeah. I have vivid memories st I still listen to it of like Tony DeVitt live from the liquid rooms in Tokyo and you know Sasha and Digweed's Northern Exposure stuff that they used to do and um, 
but in ter- to, to answer your question, the first time I became acutely aware of DJing, the act of DJing, yeah. was a friend of mine. And he went by the name of DJ Blackout, so a big shout to Shane Glover if he's listening, which he could well be uh, when I direct him to this. Anyway, uh, he'll get a good <laughs> kick. Inbox yeah, everything. Exactly, he'll get a good <laughs> kick out of this. Um, he went by the name of DJ Blackout, and he used to get booked for school discos when okay. we were in school. And like he was one of the only DJs in school, and he was certainly the first one I became aware of. Um, and because to me up to then a DJ had been somebody you'd see at a party like you'd go to a wedding and there'd be somebody who'd play songs after the band and that that was a DJ and that was yeah. my understanding of that term as a fixed thing so he opened up he blew my mind and opened it up to the fact that you could get records and you could mix them yeah, and you could blend them in and make the beats and change the pitch and I didn't know the pitch could ever be changed yep. On and he used, he used physical vinyl now CDs were huge at the time already but he was using vinyl which was on the verge of becoming old school at the time Yeah, and again this was amazing because the only records so I what sort seen, of age are you at this point um, at this point I'm probably 15 16 so this is, so this is post you going to the to the shop which we heard about before yes oh yeah so, this is a good bit afterwards so when yeah. you've been going to that shop originally mm. were you buying stuff on tape or were you buying stuff on CD? Um, or were you buying... started with tape, but very, very quickly, it, w- it was about CDs. So right, yeah. I, I've, I've maybe three or four tapes, and I always keep music. I never throw out a CD, so I have yeah. the whole collection still. I've, I've, like, three or four tapes, bar what I would have recorded myself, yeah. and, and then, then straight away nearly it was CD. CDs. So, yeah. that's, so it's a couple of years, two or three years after you've, you've had that experience of buying things and hearing that Technotronic mm-hmm. remix. But then this guy, DJ Blackout, he's playing off 12-inch vinyl yeah, yeah. On, on a set of Technics. Yeah, and it was wasn't even Technics. I think he had Vestax or something Amazing. at the time. They weren't Technics. Yeah. Um, uh, because none of us had any money. It's not like kind of kids now, they have a disposable income. We just didn't have it. Unless we went out and found a way to creatively do something. There weren't like jobs that a 12, 13, 14 year old yeah. could go and do. You weren't, you weren't really able to work. So you, I remember I used to do mad stuff for money. Like I'd, uh, I created a business when I was about 12 and I robbed my dad's lawnmower and I, I he had a computer a box, yeah you're dead right borrowed because he had a computer um, with with a like a really high end printer he's a landscape architect so okay. he had this high end printer that I figured out I'd use really early so I was always messing around with kind of graphic design and that's it and I thought at one point that was maybe what I was going to do as a job um so I went and I got flyer, printed flyers myself and used up all his really expensive ink and whatever it was. And I, I, I did flyer drops at, like at a ridiculously young age and people would ring up the house. Yeah, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm contacting whatever the name for this Business. alleged company yeah. was. Um, yeah, I want to get my grass cut. So I'd go around. Now, this ended really quickly. But we all saw what age I was. So I'd roll up and I would literally push this hand mower like a mile down the road in the middle of the town about to, to cut one person's grass for like three quid and love stuff. This, then I used to um, I used to sell lemonade on the on, on the doorstep of the house much to the chagrin of my parents who were probably mortified. Anything to try and earn a few it's quid really to buy the next, I was the next say, it's really CD. To be annoyed with your children for having that level of of drive yeah. and entrepreneurship. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I can see why I would potentially be annoyed if all my high quality printer ink had disappeared. He was annoyed at that, but <laughs> interestingly, I never got given out to for that kind of thing. I like, and, and that's probably for the reason that you've just highlighted. Because yeah, although you may be annoyed at first, yeah. in retrospect, it is a it is a really a really good thing. So, so DJ Blackout is he then? letting you have a go is he sort of teaching you is he showing you straight away yeah right. yeah because he didn't have like 
there was no one else who was it was just him and I think he wanted somebody to kind of vibe off or because, whatever you know what's interesting for me at, at this point straight away is and, and this is right for other people but mm. just because of the way that you've sort of described this journey mm. you've got into music via recording tape listening to music yeah. buying a tape playing a tape buying a CD listening to a CD but then all of a sudden you're being shown that music in this form can now be tactile that you can mm -hmm. touch it move it you know as far as the, the turntables go you, you're touching a piece of vinyl and even like if no one's ever done it it's mind-blowing that first time when you just move the first beat of a record it backwards really and forwards. It really is, and, yeah, and, yeah. and you hear it go at the speed that your hand goes. I mean, I remember, like, doing it for the first time and picking up the vinyl and being like, what? Yeah. On this? Yeah, yeah. So it's just interesting because some people just start with vinyl. Right, okay, understandable. Some people never touch vinyl. Fine, do you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, I'm all for, you know, digital progression. Yeah. But what was interesting just about the way you described it there was is that you're already, like, sort of two or three or even four years into owning music, buying music, play music before someone sort of just opens this whole world of mm -hmm. going yep you can change the pitch you can we can pull it back you can let it go yeah like just even that to me is like just just even as you're just saying it makes me have so many memories of like all that kind of stuff so blackout showing you how to do it yeah he showed me how to do it and straight away my head goes right to, how how do i get gigs and maybe it's that entrepreneurial spirit i don't know but yeah again um I, I was I did a lot of drama in school and like plays musicals. Um, obviously, I sang in that band for a while. Oh, so that fledgling so, band. So you were a singer in a band. Yeah. No. I mean, we we didn't do any gigs. We we just okay. used to rehearse and re again record the music that we made. But we wrote songs. I was writing at that stage, yeah, and which is all part of the which all feeds it's in the process. Sure, so, you know, so, yeah. so is this? Were you singing in the band prior to sort of this this DJ blackout? moment or, or is it post this or is it all about it's, the same time it's around the same time because cool. the, the minute I realised hang on a minute I can DJ too that was the end of the band right yeah. so they, they were I'd say they were like as the world there was an overlap a, as, as the world lost another Bono or? the world has lost a great talent you know <laughs> a great great talent um, and you never know I, I might revisit that someday I mean if, if, if this all doesn't work out I, that's my backup that's my plan B so uh, yeah if there, if there, anyone loses a lead singer in a, only a really high profile band obviously because my talents are at that level um, yeah I'll step in so Chris Martin if you decide to pack it in lads let, keep calling Play going, drop, 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 draft me in. Yeah. I can sing in a great falsetto. So, so, you, so, you, so even before you've got any equipment mm. and potentially maybe even some records, you're looking for gigs immediately. Like, <laughs> and, and I'm not joking. Talk about putting the cart before the horse. So, where that led me, Felix, was a kind of a strange place in that I was kind of messing around every now and again and blackouts stuff in, in his bedroom, like his yeah. decks. But I was also on the student representative council in the school. And our job was to organise table quizzes, discos, fundraisers, that kind of stuff. And we were let down by the DJ who... Blackout didn't let anyone down. It wasn't him. So there must have been another DJ in the school. There must have been, just, just thinking back. Yeah. Uh, because we were let down anyway it's by... Sully Blackout's name at this point. No, and I mean, he, he, he always operated with the utmost integrity. So... <laughs> if you're listening. <laughs> even at 14 and 15. <laughs> so... <laughs> There, there, there was something to do with the DJ anyway who couldn't turn up and this was on the day yeah. and I had a big music collection and I said okay well look how hard can it be yeah how hard can it be let's do it so so, <laughs> so do what I did my first gig was drafted in with no knowledge oh, and get this the decks were CD decks yeah 
So like I, the double, like the double denim ones. Not like, even. Like no, the, two separates, two separate, two like hi-fi, hi-fi, just hi-fi standalone. Exactly, amazing. Exactly, so no, right? not even pitch control on them. Not even pitch control. Amazing. And strangely, I was rather than being intimidated by this, I was delighted because I knew my way around the play and stop button on a CD player. <laughs> And I knew what a mixer was, and I thought, okay, I'll just blend them in. I'll find spots in the tracks where there's no beat, and because I, I still couldn't beat mix at this stage. I mean, I, I'd well, only to be like fair, who could on two CD yeah. separates. Yeah, no, but even on vinyl, I couldn't. <laughs> right, yeah, you know what okay. I mean? So, and I didn't have a vinyl collection, so the only way this was going to happen yeah, was if I brought all my CDs in yeah. and just faded stuff. So I did that, and I also figured, right, I can fill some gaps with the microphone because I was no stranger to microphones. Yeah. So I channeled my inner Maxim Reality from Prodigy, and, and I probably thought it was him. And I had best time. Like there were four hundred of my friends Which from school. Which at that point is a obviously it was huge. Like most of the school used to go to these things. Yeah. And I had obviously been there every time as a punter, if you like, yeah. having the buzz. And this is your moment. And uh, this was my moment. So every scooter track, every ultra beat track, every prodigy track, any of these import CDs that I was buying on ZYX. So like. I remember specific tracks that I played like I can't remember who it was by but like Church of House and there was West Bam stuff Wizards of the Sonic you know all, all this kind of stuff like because I was buying anything I could get my hands on or afford yeah. at the time so I was just playing it all and in between it was me emceeing it you know yeah. without any particular knowledge bar Maxime who was a hero just, of mine just making noise in between exactly. to blend things and, yeah. and I saw oh, right that there's a crowd to be fair, and they're responding to I was what I'm saying. I mean, like. to be fair, you know, and I do, I'm fully aware of what, how you're describing it. You, you're mm. very funny, and I'm laughing a lot. But at the same time, you are really just describing the bare essence of what full professional stadium filling artists do anyway. That's really. it. It's you're, a vibe. It's about a vibe. Yeah, you're basically yeah. creating, creating a vibe with records that you love, working a way to piece them together that the crowd are going to enjoy mm. and ultimately, a, a, occasionally segmenting that with your voice to kind of again, create and add even more levels of, yeah. watch, watch Tomorrowlands, watch Dimitri Vegas Night Mike. Yeah. That's just basically what they do. Yeah. You know what I mean? I know, you know, I know you don't hear Coxie on the microphone that much, but you've basically, even as your first gig, just mm. described what you know, stadium fillers today would still be doing, really. Well, you're right. And to me, it was about the show. It, it, it yeah. wasn't even about the technical side of it then, at yeah. that stage yet. It was about the show, because again, going back to my dad and his like large-scale plotter, the printer, um, immediately, and bear in mind, this is before I've ever done a gig, I'm not a DJ, I had branded myself as the minister... Right? Love it. So, so yeah, and, and again, subsequent gigs then were why? the minister. I need to know why. Uh, two, two reasons. One, because Church of House, that was such a big right, song, okay. and I realised there was an intro on that song that went on for ages. It was Church Bells, yeah. and a bit like kind of Quench Dreams or something like yeah. that. And I thought, right, that's really atmospheric. Yeah. Um, that's your intro right there. Exactly. I knew there was going to be like a lighting system and smoke, so I thought, right, that's atmospheric. Now, if I'm like, if I'm the preacher, if I'm the minister, I didn't want to say the fucking priest. Do you know what I mean? So, right, we're in Ireland. After yeah, all. exactly. We're in Ireland. So, what what represents that, but isn't overtly religious? Okay, the minister, right? Lovely. Allied with that, I was convinced I was going to be a politician when I was older. Like, my back family background is steeped in politics and I thought right somewhere down the line I'm definitely hence I was on the student elected student representative council yeah. and I was fascinated by politics how times change but anyway so not only um, have we lost a great singer but uh, yeah well I've, I've gone completely the other way I mean I'm still fascinated by politics but for all the other reasons yeah. I'm on the other side of the fence that's, we'll save but, that for the other podcast yeah exactly that's for alchemy but <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah I had come up with a logo 
the font I remember was that amazing. old English font. There were so few fonts I just like that, that I had access to. This is such an amazing lesson. And to be fair, I think a lot of DJs do this now. Mm. But I love the fact that you had you had a name. You had a logo mm. before you before you had equipment or, or done a gig. Exactly, and I, did, I, did, <laughs> I didn't even realise that this was branding at the time. I just thought that'd be cool. Let's do it, you know. So, and I had printed. I, I still to this day have that sign from the gig because it hung Amazing. from the roof, and there were UV lights. I will. I'll send you, you a picture of it, and it's it's like. I also had a record label. I, I thought, right, I'll invent a record label. So I, I called it, like it was DNR Records because I didn't do drugs. Loads of my mates did. I didn't. It just wasn't something I was into. So it was like, drugs not required. DNR Records, right? And I thought, okay, that's my cool thing. And now, it wasn't a record label. It was just, again, another brand that I invented. Doesn't matter. So you have a big The Minister in white letters Amazing. on a black background. And again, talk about using up all the ink, the black background, <laughs> on this huge, like billboard sign I know people can't see it but like it was that size yeah. so bigger than a naught it was this huge thing um, hanging from the roof and the white the idea was the white would be lit up with the smoke coming from under it by the UV light <laughs> you know again, you, yeah. you're planning production <laughs> it's, 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 it's ridiculous <laughs> it's amazing so, so yeah like so this is uh, yeah, I, I, I just wish there were kind of smartphones or cameras that people would bring to stuff at that time there weren't so there are no pictures of it but uh, the pictures are in my head Fucking and I just remember Remember, this is the thing for me the buzz yeah. that I got off seeing people respond to what I was doing with music on a I'm stage. not sure I did a gig with that level of production and branding for about 10 years of my career <laughs> <laughs> well it's funny because I got the shock of my life when I started doing clubs then and I realised what like I wanted the big show so, you, so, you, so, you, so, you, so you've so you've you've done that gig right yeah the minister has fucking landed right you, yeah you've, you've nailed it you know what I mean it's, it's great yeah obviously you know the, the sort of endorphins are pumping and everything mm. else I mean did you have that that moment is maybe a bit big but you had that sense that like this is this is what I want to do like, oh well I knew straight away I want to do this again yeah yeah, yeah so I, and, and straight away I went about figuring out how can I do this again yeah so I which is a great thought process I think well yeah and again this wasn't even really a conscious thing it's just looking back I yeah. realised that th yeah. th this was kind of the timeline um, so straight away I had a friend who uh, was big into rowing and there was a rowing club in Carlo a, a fairly big sized rowing club with a clubhouse and I knew that they did discos every now and again like underage discos so I thought right I'm going to get on to him and see could I DJ at one of these yeah so Sure enough, he came through, and within about two weeks, I had my second gig, which was at the rowing club. Two so I, weeks? About two weeks later, yeah. So I thought, right, I need to get my hands on a sound system and lights. I've no money, how do I do that? So I started asking around to see where any, like, wedding DJs, because they were the only the real DJs yeah. that I knew of. Yeah. And again, I tied in with a guy who had a rig, and he gave me a loan of the rig. Yeah. So again, the minister banner, but this time I have control over the production, right? right? So I'm able to position the lights where I want them, the UV and stuff. <laughs> now, I remember it took me about four hours to set up in Carlo Rowing Club on the stage, but I was so pleased with this. And again, I, again, the buzz, the buzz hit me straight away and I can remember particular tracks from this gig as I can from most gigs Gala Freed from Desire drove the place nuts and, and, I how, just, and how that survived oh man yeah like I, <laughs> I, I still play remixes exactly. that every now and exactly. again so um, yeah I just remembered that those two gigs were <coughs> if you combine them within that two week space I thought right this this is something I want to do as a hobby the band forget about it I won't, I'm not going to have time for that and so you're still you're still kind of you're still in in 
secondary schools or high school what would you yeah, call it yeah 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 secondary school high school same and, thing and this so point, I'm only halfway through yeah, it yeah and at this yeah. point you're still even you know there's still the politics things in the back of your head because mm. no one at this point is thinking I'm going to be a full time DJ in any case no well to me it was I'm going to be a barrister um, the graphic design thing I, I didn't really I decided at that stage that's not for me yeah um, I'm go- again the other side my mum's side of the family it's, it's law so yeah. I'm going to be a barrister I've always been <laughs> really uh, there you go um, and I, I, I didn't even know about Judge Shields at this stage but I've always been really argumentative and like really into the use of language and stuff so it seemed like an obvious thing and a lot of legal professionals then going to politics and stuff so yeah. that was my career path I was going to become the president via law yeah. so, so that's, that's so what it was so for me so then what you know what happened in the intervening or the preceding few years like mm. you know without kind of <coughs> going into like ridiculous detail about each yeah. bit yeah. what sort of happened over the course of those next three after those first two gigs what happened like to, to the point where did you go to university yeah so I, what happened to the point of you kind of going to university and through university um, DJ wise sorry not like yeah. personal wise just mobile gigs and specifically commercial mobile gigs I figured out how to make money from this yeah um, and I, I was all about like how can I get my hands on as much music as possible I need money to do that yeah. so the guy who had lent me the equipment uh, said look do you want to tag along to some of the weddings and 21st parties and that kind of thing that I do and I said absolutely yeah so the next gig that I went to was a 21st party that he was DJing at in the rugby club in Carlo and I thought okay so this is easy the, the, I, I have I, all this music I, I can do this I, yeah, in fact I can probably it, do it better ex- exactly. I'm the minister I'm the minister exactly I mean <laughs> what can the minister not do so he gave me like a, a, ten, a 10 minute slot at the end of it just just to give yeah. me a go yeah. and as you say I've realised yeah I can do this so I struck a deal with him whereby I'd rent the equipment from him yeah. um, until I could save up to do yeah. my own if he had a double booking or a second booking on a night he would then pass it on to me yeah. and I realised very quickly I'm actually good at this so people used to have a stroke when I would arrive at the gig at that age my dad God love him would load the equipment into the car the back he had a, like a station wagon car Yeah, load the equipment into that he'd drive me to the gig he'd come again at the end and pick me up but like God bless parents the, well exactly and God bless some of the people who had booked um, me for these parties because they didn't know I was a kid so that, like they were contacting this other guy and he would say oh you have another guy who can do it and would leave it, would leave it at that yeah so John would arrive and he's like he's, <laughs> like, he's, a boy. he's 16 yeah. like, or 15 whatever age I was and there were one or two moments where I remember phone calls being made to the other guy and, it's, and it would be like and oh. I love the idea that he just went just just give him just let just watch yeah well fun. I think it was probably rogue behaviour on his part because he was getting a quote I don't know but yeah, right. uh, but I, I, I was I was good at it. I, yeah. w- I would win them over straight away. And, and did did this? So and, and there are there are PBH who's talked about this, and there's other people mm. on the pod who've talked about it. it. Did this lead to you? Did, was that just basically the lineage for quite a while, or did this lead to a bar gig or a club gig, or did this just carry on like for quite a few years without you really going anywhere else as a DJ? No, it didn't. Like me being me, it was like okay, how do I get into bars or nightclubs? Right, okay. And I started writing letters, physical letters, Amazing. like printing letters to local bars and there was, there was one club in particular that played dance and just, music and just Carlo. help me out with the geography here because I'm obviously yeah. from so you lived in Carlow and how far away is that from Dublin from Dublin it's like 50 miles ish so it's a yeah. decent like, that's not a taxi yeah. ride home you can't pull your speakers home like, no that's, that's but all these gigs would have been local in yeah. the, the Carlow and, and, and how region. big is Carlow 
sort of is because I don't know it at all. Is it tiny? The town is right. like maybe. At it's the, not got a thousand at the time, capacity it, nightclub by any stretch of the imagination. Well, it it, it does now, and it did <laughs> it did very quickly. There's one of the biggest clubs in the country happens to be in Carlow because they have a big student population. Okay, and um, so there were two nightclubs in the town at the time. One which is still there and is still really really good and really big. Okay, the Foundry. Yeah, oh, um, I've heard of it. Yeah. yeah, and then there was another one called Nexus, which was small. It was like three or four hundred capacity. Cool, and they played dance music. Cool, and obviously I'd never been in it, uh, but my dad knew the guy who owned the bar that it was attached to and hence the nightclub as well so I wrote a, re- a letter to if this if you sort guy. of hit 18 at this point no. in these letters no, no like I'm still uh, this is like weeks after, after <laughs> hours I was on the way home from the yeah, gig yeah honestly this is uh, I mean it's <laughs> and, are you, and are you hoping to DJ at that age in the bars and well I just I you don't think about stuff like that yeah I know I just I wanted to do it so okay. let's try and, and figure it did, out how did the letter writing campaign go the letter letter writing went really well the first letter um, I love that I, there was a phone call to the house and Amazing. it was like is John there and my dad had answered and he it like, was, was his friend Sil and he was what John and yeah yeah I, I need to speak to John like my dad is like friends for years with this guy Okay, so John comes on the phone and says, yeah, I got your letter. Uh, can you come in for a chat? So I went into Scrags Alley is the name of the bar. It's still there as well. Amazing. I'm um, still a, a really popular student haunt. And uh, I went in and straight away I was introduced to their resident DJ in the club who said, right, come in when I'm playing like whatever, Friday or Saturday night. This So was my first experience of a nightclub I'd never been in a nightclub before and again I had brought like some CDs and he gave me 10 or 15 minutes at the end and this was just brilliant so he must have liked me because and did you sort of it's a question I always ask because I did and still Mm. do to this day and some but some DJs don't did you immediately sort of fall in love with nightclubs and bars I mean like I don't you know don't get me wrong I'm not talking about the you know the the, the urine stained toilets and the getting elbowed in the eye but I I love DJ booths I love the way you go into a nightclub I love walking in and looking at the lights I love what I love absolutely I love everything about bars and nightclubs in this sort of logistical DJ sense yeah like so if I anywhere I go as soon as I go in somewhere new I'm like you know I was in I was away in last weekend in like Estonia and Latvia and as soon as I got into the venues I was just like looking where the DJ booth is how big is it what equipment have they got lights like the exact same yeah and it's like where is the position yeah. of the DJ box in relation to the floor and how is the crowd going to be able to interact and on yeah. what level and to what extent suddenly just yeah. rating it and ranking it and like not good enough I put it there and like, I'm, like I've gone into bars and redesigned them in my head yeah yeah yeah, yeah I can totally relate <laughs> to that totally yeah so um yeah, straight away I, I got a gig every Friday night in the bar. Amazing. Then, um, so are you getting paid? I'm getting paid 50, 50, uh, 50 quid a night for that, and then on a Saturday, wow. I would do like the the weddings and that stuff. So, so you must have felt like a millionaire. Oh, I, I I was a millionaire. <laughs> my, like, do you know? I mean, I could suddenly every single week without fail buy CDs. Yeah, and I realised because I was doing the weddings and the money was a bit more. Then you're probably getting 150 quid or 200 quid sometimes for doing these mobile gigs. Yeah, I realised hang on I also have money on the side to buy vinyl like which was the holy grail for me I need to get back to a place where I can use these decks that Blackout had you know so I saved up and saved up and I was buying bits of mobile gear so eventually I had my own gear I bought vinyl decks then as well I bought CD decks that I could actually mix on Um, and I was buying vinyl without I wasn't doing dance gigs this was commercial gigs but I realised I can mix this too I can mix pop music I can mix hip hop and I was big into hip hop at this stage as well um, and I I can be a DJ with all this music so I can learn how to do the technical stuff yep. without having the, the kind of the environment 
in which to do it with dance music. Yeah. And again, dance music was quite commercial at the time, so like there was a lot of stuff crossing over into the charts. So there was an opportunity to play that in yeah. bars, um, like tracks like Dahu Love Love Parade and yeah. you know Sandstorm and all, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Storm Storm. I just remember these rocking that bar that I was in. This is so, sort of late nineties, early noughties. Yeah, early noughties. I, yeah. I, I would say, yeah. Cool. Um, How long so, was it? Do you remember? Did you ever get? Did you? Did you get to play the club? Like as you were playing the bar, did you get to play the club? Every now and again, you'd get the chance to do it. And I mean, normally it would be a wedding, or sorry, not a wedding, but like a twenty-first in the nightclub. They used to host a lot of stuff like that. But it was a nightclub, yeah. And you'd get to play fifteen or twenty minutes of dance at the end. So to me, this was just the dream, and it kind of developed from there. Like I, I, I got a reputation. Quite are you quickly. still a minister, or have, um, you, have you left this behind? Are you, are you no, I, what I'm doing is I'm making CDs at this point, like I'm burning CDs of me mixing as the minister, and I'm yeah. giving those to my friends, and, well, selling them when I could. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and like even even the, the there was another shop in the town, Rainbow Records, where I used to work at Christmas as well, um, and they would stock these CDs. So I do like a really professional looking cover and burn the more CDs ink. and get exactly more ink, and they they would sell them and they'd take a small cut uh, and, and yeah. So I was selling CDs at the time um, and I got a reputation quite quickly for like the commercial DJ inside of things yeah. I was being quite good at it and I was starting to get other bars and other stuff further afield a lot of weddings a lot of 21st yeah. so there's quite a bit of money coming in and I'm, able, I'm just ploughing it all back into, into music, into music and yeah. I'm saving up for a car so that when I get when I hit seventeen, I, I, I yeah, my exactly. Yeah. So the minute I turned seventeen, bought an absolute shitbox of a car, but that got me mobile properly, yeah. mobile, and I suddenly I was this one man in like industry or business, you yeah. know, and it it just went from there. So what happens when you go to university? Mm. Do you go to university in Dublin? Yeah. So I I, I go to UCD, which, um, which in itself is really interesting because. I was I didn't do the mobile stuff like you did, but I got into doing um, bars and clubs in my mm. um, town where I grew up in in, yeah. in in Carlisle. Yeah, and then eighteen, I went to university in London. Um, this podcast is not about me, but I'm for, foreseeing what you might say because yeah. I then, I then had to find gigs and everything else. So what's what's your story? You've you've built up this reputation. Yeah, you are you know you're making money. You you're playing at a cool little place. What happens when you go to Dublin? How do you right? So I'm 18 going to Dublin. I have the car though, and I have my regular gigs, and it's close enough to drive back home every weekend. Okay. So initially that's <clears> what I did, but the bright lights of Dublin, and I do remember growing up. Um, now that you mention it, every now and again you would see in a bar those that did play dance music advertised out like on one of the chalkboards Saturday night, Dublin DJ. They wouldn't even name the DJ or they'd be like, Dublin DJ. Amazing. A DJ from Dublin. So everyone would go because they must be good. They're from Dublin. So... To me, this was still obviously somewhere embedded in my subconscious, so I had to get DJing in Dublin. Dublin yeah. And this is not with a view to a career or anything like that. Yeah. So again... And you're studying law, right? Uh, no, I'm studying history and politics history, with, a, with a view to with then view doing to the, the bar exam. Bar. Yeah, to yeah. do the bar exam. So, um, immediately, I start sending emails. So and we've moved on. So I, we've progressed from the letter writing. Yeah, exactly. So, immediately, <laughs> the, the emails start, and it was to nightclubs and... Um, owners and anyone I could be introduced to. So pretty much overnight, I started getting some gigs because I could talk a good talk and I also could back it up with with experience. Yeah. So I'd give references or whatever and a yeah. couple of phone calls would be made. Right, Grant, we'll give you a shot. Yeah. And there was a club in Dublin called The River Club, which I knew nothing about it. I just knew it was a club in Dublin. Um, 
anyone who knows Dublin will know the Hapenny Bridge, which crosses the Liffey right in the centre of Dublin. Yeah. And they're on one side, on the south side of the bridge, they're immediately in front of you. There's a bar, which is called something else now. I, I don't know what it is, but you'll see it like it's the Merchant's Arch. It's the entrance to Temple Bar. Yeah. And above that, there was a nightclub which yeah. overlooks the Liffey, this stunning protected building. And that's where I got my first gig in Dublin. And it turned out to be a wine bar that went on, it was a night, oh, sorry, a nightclub, but it only served wine. So they, because they only did that, they did theatre licence, they could go till 4am okay. when everybody else had to close at 2. So I got a gig three times a week in there. Which is the dream as a DJ. Oh, but this was, this <laughs> was phenomenal. And I was playing for six hours, like from whatever it was, 10, 11 o'clock at night till four in the morning. And I guess this is a whole new education for you as well. Like, mm. as far, you know, for playing that amount of time, you've moved to Dublin, which is a, you know, I imagine slightly different music. And very different to weddings and twenty first. Different, yeah, different clients. And this was how to build a night. It's yeah. not just twenty minute segments where yeah. you got to give them their ABBA mega mix now and then you move yeah. on to dance or whatever it was. Yeah. This is you build a night. You've people coming in like doors open. I'm already on the decks. So you're going from zero people to whatever the, the club being full yeah. and they're getting drunker and drunker and it's wine and it had an older clientele than than, than some of the bars I'd been playing in so it was just a different demographic yeah. and this was and learning to, such an education yeah and learning to read that as a DJ learning to adapt to that as a yeah. DJ are huge facets of your sort of toolbox you know as, it's as, the, as the most important DJ. thing and it's, yeah. it's it's why I'm never shy like I know a lot of a lot of people who would have kind of done that mobile stuff who don't like talking about and don't like people who progressed on to become yeah. dance DJs and they don't like because there's maybe a stigma attached to it I'm the complete opposite because this is where I learned how to properly DJ and I'm not talking about the technical yeah. side of it I'm talking about how to the psychology of it yeah. how to look at a crowd and understand P- a crowd PBH how to read people yeah. PBH said exactly the same he was like if you can turn up to an 18th birthday party yeah. of a girl or a guy that you don't know mm. and you don't know their family and they don't know you and you can walk out of there how many hours later with everyone buzzing yeah. like, that's DJing absolutely was like, well, and, and he knows he's a president of BCM now you know blah 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 same with me with the big games I done walk into somewhere where they all know you they all know your records yeah. and you just play those records that they know to them I mean that's piss easy it's, it's so <laughs> much easier <laughs> than facing this intimidating but, but family turn up to situation. other people yeah. who are looking at you going go then dickhead yeah. what are you going to fucking do and they want you to fail you know <laughs> They, they do. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, so it's, you know, so, yeah, I mean, I, again, I completely agree. It's not something I did a lot of, but not out of choice. It was just mm. never something that was open to me. But PBH said exactly the same thing. If you yeah. can walk into there, set your own speakers up, set your own equipment up, and, and rock all these people mm. who just don't know who the fuck you are from Adam, that's DJing. Yeah, like, that's, exactly. That's real, like, graft. And the thing for me as well, allied with that, was I was getting a buzz off every gig. Like, because I grew up listening to pop music and I loved pop music and I loved all kinds of styles so yeah. I didn't mind doing a rock set or a slow set or yeah. whatever it was because I liked all that music so I was getting and I can genuinely hand on heart saying this like I eventually got sick of doing commercial gigs we'll get onto that at some point but um, I was hand on heart getting as much of a buzz out of those gigs at that time as, as I do out of playing BCM yeah, now yeah. to a full house you yeah. know it was the same dynamic it was the same psychology and the same yeah. buzz I always I mean I feel it's like a challenge almost but anyway so let's let's move forward a little bit because we are tight for time of day mm-hmm. sort of summarise what, so what happens when you do you do the bar like what happens at the end of university obviously you, I, I take it you're sort of gigging all the way through university yeah. various places in Dublin yeah. still maybe going back and doing this and that what happens when you get to the end of university well I knew very early on um, like I, I was picking my courses within the course based on what was 
the latest starting one because I'd be up to like four because <laughs> I was DJing seven nights a week at this stage wow. and, and this was this was just what I did you yeah. know I've made very few friends in university bar the ones who had come from Carla with me because yeah. I didn't I wasn't mixing I, I didn't live the un, like the college university lifestyle yeah. at all it, to me the focus was DJing 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 yeah. this, this, this is what I want to do right now and still still it wasn't a career but I had a decision to make because like the, the the King's Inn where you do the bar that that was looming and I said right I'm going to give it two years music two years because I was already I was earning a good living at this stage yeah. um I suppose for some of my age quite a lot of money yeah. and I was also running uh, a company I had set up a company at this stage and I was providing venues with DJs com- yeah. commercial DJs makes a lot of sense yeah so I was doing a lot of that and it, it was very time consuming I said right two years let's see where it takes me yeah. that was the end of like academia if you like that that I mean, I've, ne- I've never, never looked back. The t- yeah, the two years never ended. It's still, I'm still, yeah, yeah I'm still, still like a month years. into the two years. You know, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so then, so then, so again, I'm aware of time here. I mean, mm. I, we could literally speak for three and a half hours, and I might come back and do another one with you. But and I don't want to hurry you. But I'm trying to get. To yeah, the no, bits there's no that, panic. We're yeah, but just to get to the bits that you want to talk about. So, so you, you're running the company. What then happens to like progress you through the ranks, and then what, what's the sort of the journey from this incredibly busy guy who's working seven nights a week, yeah. also running a company and spending other stuff? What sort of happens then over the next the sort of? Okay, it- so very, very, very briefly, um, like a kind of potted version, I suppose. Uh, I started work, even though I had my own company, I started working for another company that got me gigs all around the country. Okay. So suddenly I'm traveling with all these gigs and I'm experiencing crowds in the West, you know, in Ireland. I realize Ireland's very small, but a crowd is very different in the West yep. to Dublin. A crowd in the North of Ireland is extremely different to one in Cork down yep. in the South. So I'm experiencing all of this and this at this point is nightclubs. Yeah. So I'm playing commercial nightclubs um, and the more... And this is as John Gibbons. This is this is now like yeah. And again, just as myself, this yeah. isn't as like a branded John Gibbons per se. And the minister has long kind of disappeared. Okay, um, such a so, shame. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I'm personally I, upset about I, that. I, I often think maybe I'll start releasing techno stuff under that name <laughs> at some point. But anyway, I digress. So I'm doing this for for a number of years, and to me, it's a living, and I'm enjoying my living. Yeah, and I don't have any particular aspirations to be. Yeah, Carl Cox, or yeah. to be whoever. I I'm, I'm just kind of going with the flow. That same period. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm in my early twenties and going with the flow, and earning. Just having a fucking lovely time. Exactly, and earning good money doing it. Yeah. And money wasn't the driving force for me at any. No, I hand and heart can say that. For me. Never has been. But I'm enjoying the fact that it's bringing in money. Yeah. And, um, it's perceived as a kind of cool job as well. You know. So a lot of my friends are like starting to go into jobs that they realise they don't like and I just feel really lucky that I'm doing something that I am enjoying yeah. and I start to promote dance gigs then because I realised right Ireland is small I, I don't know how to get dance gigs I don't know how to play the music that I really really want to be playing yeah. um, so I started to promote and I started to set up little nights here and there and bits yeah. and pieces in Carlo and I also at the same time was doing pirate radio and had been all up along Okay. and I snagged a gig on Spin 1038 in Dublin which was very new at the time it was a fresh youth station that played a lot of dance music it had okay. dance music shows every night of the week and I got a Thursday night show on that all of a sudden I had a profile because still at this point radio was the go-to place for people yeah, to before Spotify before exactly YouTube, before, before streaming yeah. exactly so all of a sudden I have a profile in Dublin off the back of the radio show and that's when things start to really kind of um, cross-pollinate in terms of the music I was playing and doing so the the John Gibbons brand if you want to call it that started to emerge off the back of the radio show and 
people started to know me for the gigs I was promoting and the, the night that I ran uh, called Electric with, with another couple of guys became a, a really big trance night not just in so who Dublin booking, but so who you booking so for we this? were booking everyone from Paul Van Dyke right down to up and coming acts from around the world so okay. like within kind of trance and tech trance so like, yeah. we, we booked over the course of like six seven years I think we did it for um everyone from the A-list of yeah. trans right down and we, we did co-pros like where we were booking Armin so it was the cream of the crop yeah. we were running stages at festivals like yeah. Planet Love Festival here in Ireland we ran stages for a couple of years so this was the trans brand in Ireland and were you predominantly playing sort of trans tech trans that sound on yeah. your radio show that was kind of uh, on the radio show I mixed it up a bit like okay. I would have been playing a good bit of techno as well but okay. like at, at but a lot of underground definitely yeah, non-mainstream oh no yeah. it definitely yeah. wasn't mainstream and again at gigs I used to kind of I used to play slightly different genres but predominantly I would say tech trance yeah okay. yeah and that was a big sound in Ireland that had morphed from Hard House in Ireland which yeah. I had kind of played it's a lot of in the past like a bit before and yeah exactly so Hard House was big and but tech trance became huge and there was a brand in Ireland in that genre for the first time that being electric so right. I have this side of things going on and I'm also still doing the commercial gigs yeah. but I'm doing them under the radar so yeah. I have regular residencies they're paying the bills yeah. while I'm losing all my money on that on the, despite the fact that it was a really successful night we hadn't a clue I mean we were being fleeced by agents and we yeah, were like this, by club owners exactly and, so but, yeah. but you're learning and you're learning lessons that will stand to you later in life yeah um, so this is going on we've the John Gibbons as a DJ as a dance DJ has kind of emerged yeah. and is known throughout Ireland and then I'm still doing the commercial gigs and I reached a watershed the more the, the more I experienced proper dance gigs and a thousand people in front of me like screaming at tracks I'd started to, to dabble in production at this point yeah. and um, a track the first track I ever made crossed over into the Irish charts totally unbeknownst to me um, like, well, it wasn't a plan is what I mean um, I didn't know that was going to happen what it was, was it called? Never, it was called Beautiful Filth and it okay. was like this this seven minute I mean I, I listen back now and I cringe at the production but what I don't cringe at is like the creative spark that was in there yep. Judge Jules picked it up really really early and started to hammer it on BBC One and it kind of crossed over here as a result and that was my calling card and I realised right production is where it's at yep. if I want longevity in the dance side of things i got to produce so that's starting to take up a lot of time I was also determined at the time not to be ghost produced okay a lot of my friends were using ghost producers and were very quickly becoming quite big and getting international careers off the back of it okay I was doing international gigs at the time mainly because I came across a guy called Mark Reader who had been he was the guy responsible for the breakthrough of Paul Van Dyke he ran okay. MFS records in Berlin um, he wasn't working with Van Dyke at the time but he was working with a lot of other DJs who were big in Europe Cor Van Dalek and um, Ivan Major people like that who aren't DJing to the same extent anymore but I was getting put on basically condition of booking was right you got to yeah. book this this Irish guy as well yeah. and I was getting a lot of international gigs which again was just blowing my mind doing gigs when, I, when I'd barely broken through in Ireland yet I'm suddenly doing gigs to 50,000 people at a festival in Mexico and I'm doing right across Eastern Europe and a lot of really really cool stuff um, the more I did that the more I realised I don't really want to do the commercial stuff as much I don't want to have to go from that and the buzz that that's now giving me it was diminishing the buzz I was getting from playing Beyonce in a commercial nightclub you know yeah, of course. Um, so I have to figure out a way to transition and that that was production so and just, just to touch on the production side of things yeah. because I think it's a it's certainly a thought process that I went through and it's a thought process that a lot of the people go through 
how did you just even begin? Like, did you just did you go and get some lessons? Did you just download like able to learn our logic or fruit loops, or did you did you teach yourself? Were you watching YouTube videos? Like, you know, you've obviously mentioned the, mm. the desire not to sort of have someone just making the records for you. Yeah. So how did you how did you go about it? Well, I had no idea what to do, so I signed up for a course in Dublin. Um, <laughs> as it transpired, a bit of a dodgy course, um, but the first uh, like. I think it was like an eight-week course and once a week and the guy who was teaching stopped turning up after two weeks but what those first two weeks had done for me was made me realize what Cubase was so right. that, that, that's what was being used in the course so all of a sudden right okay it's like building blocks it's, it's not that difficult I don't have to get a bank of hardware I had a computer already yeah um, all I have to do is get some software for my computer and Cubase. maybe a couple yeah so I started on a, a cracked version of Cubase yeah. and I think, I think almost everyone exactly Jesus. exactly and there were no YouTube t- tutorials really at this stage it okay. was I just need to figure this out um, so again a couple of mates of mine who I knew produced they gave me some again cracked VSTs yeah. so suddenly I had sounds and I just started putting them together and and did you have any sort of I know you'd been the, the singer in the, in the band mm. Did you have any, like, did you have a knowledge of chords? Did you have a knowledge of chords? Oh, no. Aggressions? I, I had played piano when I was very young, okay. uh, to, to quite a high level, but had, had abandoned that and had forgotten how to play it. And to this day, I still, I know the chords or whatever, but I can't play no, the piano per se. So, no, there wasn't any kind of musical, I mean, Avicii um, formal musical around. background. Yeah, yeah, no. Avicii dragged the, the, the blocks around. You and, know, and and that, yeah. that, that's what I did. And yeah. that's what I still do. I still drag them around, do you know what I mean? And I'll, I'll program the notes in to a synth now yeah. rather than oh, we literally play the chords you know so that yeah so that, that's that's the way I did it and at this at around this time as well I was introduced through a mutual friend to a guy from Cork called um, Colin and he was big in the Irish hip hop scene there was this fledgling Irish hip hop production scene at the time and he was a producer and the friend of mine who I used to do a lot of commercial gigs with he, he's a rapper I'm still really good friends with him Muzzy um and he introduced me to this guy and like we were like chalk and cheese but musically we clicked straight away he hounded me for about six months we need to do something together you need to come to my house and so I went to his house and he had like hardware which I had no experience over whatever he'd like I can't even remember what it was some some drum machine and some other synth and sampler and stuff but he had these amazing beats that he was making and I started singing riffs over his beats and we thought right we're going to make a track so he came up to me and Carlo and we made that first track Beautiful Filth which yeah, wow. kind of launched things okay. and we, we continued from there cool. and we like we have it to this day a studio together he eventually moved up to Carlo and we have a studio together and we have our own studios within the, within this building and wow. we work together on a daily basis still wow. to this day and we so fight like that, cats so and how, dogs so how, and so how long is that now? Like, so that's wow That we started around I think it was 2008 2007 2008 so, okay, it's, so over, it's over 10 years just over 10 years wow. yeah and he like we're more than the sum of our parts because he has strengths which complement my weaknesses and vice versa in a yeah. production sense and we have we've actually developed we've decided rather than trying to be all things to all people all at once why not you concentrate on those um, and because of that we've become accomplished producers in our own right yeah um, because I learn off him so my weaknesses 
have automatically become stronger over time, even without me focusing on them, because yeah. I see how he operates. Yeah. And yeah, we just we just have become more than the sum of is, our parts. Is that a studio in the sense of it's completely private, or do other people use it? Do you welcome my other guys in there no, to work it's, with you? It's, or is it it's completely private. Right, okay, um, cool. it, it was, I mean, for, for the longest time, it was in a converted bedroom in my house. <laughs> and he literally moved into my house when he moved to Carlo. And cool. we lived together Amazing. and we killed each other and we would produce then during the day and I would go off and do gigs at night. And we then progressed to renting a building and building yeah. our studio within it and the whole lot. So so we've a proper studio and yeah, it's just the way we work. We we I mean I do a lot of stuff in other studios now and I'm over and back to London all the time to, to my label and I work with a lot of other producers too, but Colin's footprint is on absolutely everything that we do nice because stuff. he's what's just what's the name of your label? Um my label is Good Soldier Songs in okay. London, which is the same label as it's it, I mean, traditionally, they didn't do dance stuff. I was the first DJ or dance producer they signed. Acts like the 1975 and Gavin James and okay. Freya Ridings. And how long and have you been signed with them? I've been with them for about four years now. Okay. And that was the start of the V2 for me, if you like. Because just, just to backtrack a little bit, yeah. um, the trance scene had started to die in Ireland and die pretty quickly. I'm still doing some commercial gigs, which are paying the bills. Yeah. But I made a decision. I decided at this point, look, I'm going for this. If everything falls to hell, to hell, so be it. I'll do something else. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, I'm not doing commercial gigs anymore, and I stopped. Yeah. And there, shout to Creation Nightclub in Dungarvan in the south of Ireland, because I'm still really good friends with the owner of that club. And if it wasn't for him giving me a regular number of gigs per year, I would have gone under yeah, financially. Yeah. I mean, I would have... I went from earning a really good income overnight, yeah. a conscious decision, to earning way below the minimum wage. Yeah. I had a handful of gigs because I was turning down commercial stuff. Yeah. I had knocked the DJ agency side on the head long before that because the recession had kicked in in yeah. Ireland and it just wasn't viable. I had lost a lot of money through venues not paying, but I'm still paying the DJs. Yeah. So I just thought, no, hang on a minute. I will start again. I'm going to be a proper dance producer okay. and I want to go after the slightly more commercial side of things because I had these two musical loves the more commercial side of music and dance music and Calvin Harris had broken through at this stage yeah. and it, that blew my mind it was wow you can do both um, within one song that's what I want to do you know so I, I love underground music as much as I always did I listen to it as much as I did I play a huge amount of it at my gig still but the music I wanted to make was music that would get on was, the radio was, was radio radio ra friendly ra dance music like, yeah that's what I, I wanted I, I to do I always loved um, I heard him I heard him um, Adam like Calvin, Calvin say it once mm. when I was like we booked him years ago and I remember someone asking him about um, that first record I forget the name of it Come Off I've just remixed it and he, it's that one that was like da, 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 da. but he was like what I took he did is I tried to make a record that was Snow Patrol versus Insomnia wow and it was like wow. that's literally what he said he went I just tried yeah. to put that sort of the sort of vocal in that they would have yeah. but then the huge moment that that um, Faithless would have amazing and then as soon as you hear him say that and you listen to it you go oh yeah fuck that's yeah I'll have to listen to it again now with those ears but it's annoying it makes everything sound so simple yeah but um and then so okay and so so what what has happened since that decision okay since that decision I thought right I need to get I, I need an outlet um I experimented with some tracks and I had spoken to a lot of people like I basically I I found every contact within music, high level contact that I could and I started knocking on doors like I did when I was 15 with the letter writing, that, yeah. similar to that. And the advice I was getting from big promoters and 
um, from big producers and always look you got to show people what you can do. So get a song on the radio yeah. and all of a sudden then you have a chance then with approaching a label or whatever. Yeah. Like, a, And to me it was, I wanted to get signed to a major. But I, I mean, it wasn't, I just want to get tracks on a label because I had plenty of tracks released over the years. Lots and lots of yeah. stuff. There's a big back, back catalogue already there of underground, mainly trance. Um, so I started to actively make this music and... The radio station I was working in, Spin 1038, at the time, the programme director at the time, Andy Ashton is his name, was really open to what I was doing. He he kind of got it and he seemed to take a particular interest in it that nobody within the radio world ever had. So I did a track um, that got on the radio. He was the first person to ever daytime playlist one of my tracks and another one and another one. And suddenly it started getting playlists on one or two other stations. Now, this isn't like prime time non-stop but you're getting spot plays every day and all of a sudden I'm hearing my songs on daytime radio now I was also hyper aware that my craft needed to um, like production craft needed to substantially increase Um, so I started to build up a body of work so that I could approach a label at some point with like 10 really good songs yeah. slightly different in again I'm taking Calvin Harris as a, as a cue here David Guetta people like that yeah. different styles but it's all radio friendly dance music yeah. so we I, I say I myself and Colin started to work really really hard on this and we spent about a year getting like th- these 10 demos together all the while Andy Ashton in Spin is giving me little bits of feedback on tracks I'm sending him yeah. stuff and it's um, and then he left Spin and he went back to XFM, um, where he had previously been in the UK. And I thought, oh, shit, what am I going to do? Because I don't know what the new PD... I, like, he was my sounding board. Yeah. Um, but we stayed in touch. And he continued to be my sounding board. And the show was still going along fine on, on radio. Um, so to get to the point of Good Soldier, Andy moved back in a really prominent radio position in, in, in Ireland. And all of a sudden we'd sit down the odd time and listen to music or whatever and I had the, the, I had this track called Your Love which I was about to self-release and pitch to radio myself and do, yeah. the, do the whole one-man band the thing way, which, yeah. which I've been doing up to then um, and another guy who has been an absolute hero for me from the like a I listened to him when I was coming through to the tracks he was making to how he put everything about Mark Kavanagh in Ireland and I don't think you will find a single person who will disagree with me on this in this country Um, there's nobody who's done more for dance music in Ireland and allowing it to become what it's become than Mark Kavanagh Mark heard your love I sent it to him and he he said to me look don't release that what will happen is the same as the last tracks it'll do well and but that, it's too good yeah right and nobody had ever said that about a song that I'd done they'd said it about dance stuff or whatever but nobody had ever, ever said that about one of the more commercial tracks and uh, the inspiration for that track had been kind of Philip George Wish You Were Mine so uh, just yeah. to give people an idea if they haven't heard the yeah. song that, that that's where my head was at with that track and I said well what am I going to do with it and he said I, I send it to people send it to people so I thought grand but before I got a chance to send it to anybody I get a call from Andy Andy Ashton it's like John we need to meet up so I met up with Andy and we sat down in a cafe and he goes um, yeah, I've listened to those 10 songs and I've played a couple of them one or two of them that I thought were good to a couple of people one being Nigel Harding in BBC yeah uh, BBC One yeah, in the UK Nigel, yeah. and Nigel has given a bit of feedback and he has said to send it to 
somebody who happened to be a good friend of Andy's who he'd worked with extensively in the past, that being Christian Tattersfield. I didn't know who Christian Tattersfield was, so I looked him up and Christian was the former CEO of Warner and a major player in the whole music world internationally the guy who had like broken Jay-Z in the UK the guy responsible for so many household names and smashes I thought what? he said yeah we have a meeting with Christian he's heard your love and he potentially wants to release it and he wants to meet you so again fast forward a couple of months I met Christian for the first time um, he was over for uh, Gavin James was I think supporting Ed Sheeran in Croke Park and he was over for that and he said right We'll meet John, met up and got signed the next week to Good wow. Soldier. Yeah, on, on initially a one single deal with options. Yeah. Um, so you're like, I mean, this, this, this blew my mind because Good Soldier is an independent label, but almost all their stuff ends up getting licensed to the majors yeah. and the whole lot. And this, this is what happened with Your Love. Your Love got, got licensed to Sony in certain regions, certain territories, and Warner and others. And all of a sudden, I'm on, like, my tracks are being put out there by several major labels at once. And, that, that that was the start of, I suppose, the John Gibbons. I don't like speaking in third person. I don't mean it that way. Yeah, but, yeah, but John Gibbons, the brand, the, yeah, Mark II. Almost a new yeah. version of the brand. Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, the options, the subsequent options were triggered with a follow-up because Your Love did well and it yeah. got lots of play on um, on UK radio and BBC. And yeah. it just, it, it opened up a whole new world did, for me. Did that, because we touched on this with like people like James Hype and stuff, did that then immediately get you more gigs or was that then just getting you more people's ears on the records that you were making you know how did that uh, a bit of both because okay. I had hardly any gigs at this stage like I, I was reaching kind of a critical point in terms of not being able to earn a living out of the secret commercial gigs I was doing at this stage yeah. and it's funny because a lot of people who knew I was doing that would say to me like how are you how are you managing you know you know because you don't seem to be doing any gigs I was doing enough to get and also by, the problem with with music if people don't know is even if you have a successful record I and mean, I haven't as one as successful as you but even even the records I've had that have done well that have even then mm. had money from various sources you know even it being licensed up and then being used in adverts you don't get that money for a very long ah, time ah years in some cases <laughs> and even then it's disappointingly low every time so, <laughs> so so even you know James had a similar story like even a record that does phenomenally well mm. that doesn't just mean you, you know you're moving into your flat in Kensington and buying your Lamborghini no, overnight like, far from it you know, far from it so um, yeah, the, the big thing for me was just to capitalise on the momentum because at this stage I've learned and, and this was about 2015, wasn't it? Because I remember that record. Yeah, 2015. About, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think it, I think it was 2015. Yeah, I remember it. Yeah, and I was so used to living on no money at this point, it it didn't really matter. So all of a sudden, yeah, to answer your question, a few gigs started coming in that weren't coming in. Yeah, um, and. They were, were they in the, Ireland? Were they international? No, they were in Ireland. Okay. Yeah, at this point, I'm not doing anything internationally. That had because all people, dried up. Because people are now hearing the record and re- remembering that you had been... Exactly. ...a thing. Yeah. So, know. in Ireland, I, I had done enough just to maintain a profile. Of course. Even though people weren't aware of how badly I was doing in terms of, like... The, no one knows. It, it, yeah, it being no a knows. career, yeah, no you know what I mean? <laughs> and, and nobody needed to know, because yeah. they, they were still hearing my music, but suddenly Your Love was this this jump into somewhere else, you know? It yeah. was, like, ubiquitous on Irish radio, and that, that was new to me. So all of a sudden, oh, Jesus, John is kind of back, in a sense. So 
Which is always funny because in your mind you've never been away. <laughs> I, I, I've never been away and I was really keen to drop my own name at this point and to use a new name okay. and, and literally start again. But the, la- the so label... Why didn't you? That's well, really the, the label wanted to hold on to the historical thing because Ireland was to become our, uh, deliberately, like our launch pad for yeah. the UK. And you had a heritage and, and in, in There was a heritage, exactly. Yeah. And the, I was still on radio at this point and it's like, hold on to what we've got here. Yeah. Um, we we will there be a separation from the back catalogue but there won't be a separation from the fact that you are one of the most prominent DJs in the country yeah. so we're, we're going to use that so they did and I, I, I was happy to go along with the plan because I know nothing and still relatively it's, it's, speaking know nothing about the music industry in terms of how it works and the machinations it's really interesting on, on two levels in the sense that like I'm starting to produce music that I was probably producing 10 years ago but probably isn't wasn't what I was known for mm. and potentially got known for this other type of music and I'm having this point now of going do I need a new brand or anything else and I'm not sure yet and I've been going backwards and forwards with various things but one something that's really interesting and really current right now is and Kev Harris posted about this the other day and Kev used to work with Dead Mouse you know, yeah, but, yeah. but he obviously is um, the guy him and Serge at Club Class are basically responsible for Medusa and Good, yeah. and, and Good Boys so they were basically you know and Kev used to look after me but I was like and he made the, he wrote this post going, you know, we have just basically launched a record under a brand that no one had heard of six months ago. Yeah. It's now topped the UK chart. I think it came didn't continue with two. Anyway, yeah. it's a global smash. Exactly. And it's just interesting. I'm not I'm not putting words in anyone's mouth or saying right or wrong or good or bad. It's just interesting and like, you know, these podcasts are interesting for a number of reasons, but certain little cruxes like that I find super interesting, you know, mm-hmm. like because you did have heritage, yeah. but it was in, and you the fact that you yourself potentially maybe wanted to move away from it, yeah. but that they went, no, no, we're gonna we're gonna stay there. So it's it's interesting. And they were really clever about it as well. It's only with hindsight I, I, I realise this now. They the label realised that it was going to be a whole new audience for me. Of course. And they weren't as concerned about the audience that were there in the past. That because might remember you, because that, that's not what it's aimed exactly. at Exactly. And yeah. they, that audience was no longer every week going to clubs in the yeah. same way. They're starting to settle down and they're getting a bit older and whatever. Yeah. So they realised that that didn't matter. Whereas I was really concerned about the backlash from the existing yeah. people who were into the, the sound that I had. That never materialised. They knew it would never materialise and... It and didn't. So, it didn't, yeah. absolutely. So, That's really so, interesting. so they nailed it in terms of that. Why? Because they know what they're doing. Whereas I wouldn't have known that, you know? So, so, and, 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 and like, honestly, we, we could have done this for three or four hours. But so just not fast forward, but yeah. fast, um, it's called scrubbing. Yeah. Fast scrubbing through the, the sort of then the, the previous four years from the release of, of mm-hmm. Your Love to sort of today. Yeah. Where, other than in a dogging spot near Dublin Airport, where, <laughs> where do we find you? Where do we find John Gibbons? Where do we find the brand? Where do we find you emotionally, physically, musically? Like what's happened in that, in those few years? And, and where are you today? Well, it, it, it's been a roller coaster for me because it's, it's funny, perceived success is very different to actual success. And you touched on it there from a financial sense. I mean, you still got to put food on the table. Yeah. You still got to put diesel in the car. You got to do all these things. Yeah. And even though, like, Your Love popped off and then Would I Lie to You came out. Um, and Would I Lie to You was a straight cover of Charles and Eddie's original. Yeah. What people don't realise then is, even though it's done like 37, 40 million streams yeah, okay. on Spotify alone, there's no publishing. That is all going to the original writer. So you're not making any money off this. And again, I, I, I don't necessarily want to harp on the money thing because it's not about that. But, but you still have to live. You still have to yeah. live. There's so, a difference between living and buying a private fucking yeah. jet. Do you know what I mean? Like, you still have to, you know, and I've gone through my tough times in, in mm. my career. You've still got to pay the rent mm. 
eat and basically have enough money so that your parents and your friends don't think you're a fucking homeless. Exactly. You know I mean, exactly. And, and but then when you do earn a little bit more money, which I, I assume you have and hope and you had done anyway previously, that's when you buy a nice watch and go on a nice holiday and and spend that money. But but there's still a base level that you just need to earn to exist. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And obviously gigs was was going to be where that um, would come from totally. in the initials. So yeah. The music is a platform at this point to tour more and more because I had to kind of start that again as well. Yeah. And Would I Like You did really well. PYT was a smash in lots of different regions around the world and um, that's when I started like hearing things about gold and platinum discs and stuff which again was just like a, a dream that was in the far off distance. Yeah. Um, so where am I now? A really good place. Like it, it's been a roller coaster the last kind of years. Because for what, what I was going to say, actually, was for every perceived success, yeah, you have the troughs as well. So you'll have a period where a track doesn't. So, for example, I went from PYT, which is like a sixty million streamer almost, to Sunglasses in the Rain, which had become kind of a cult hit in Ireland. Okay, but it didn't do the numbers on streaming. So that's like you're going from sixty million to three million. Yeah, and to me. If somebody told me a track would do three million a year earlier, yeah. it would have been oh wow, what incredible! But at that point, because a lot of stuff had happened really quickly, I was devastated. Yeah. My life is over. I'm a failure. This, that, and the other. And it took some very careful management. By by the way, Andy Ashton, who we mentioned in the past, he he became my manager just before Your Love. So okay. the kind of it's just amazing how that that timeline parallel to my own career it just all came together yeah. it was like worlds collided or whatever Which often and, does, I think, yeah. yeah and Andy's amazing he's still my manager and he's still opened so many doors and, but he carefully managed that side of things and he was able to say no hang on a minute don't worry about that that's out there in the world now yeah. we're focused on the next thing and you and you do and the often, next thing and the next thing and you do often I've just started managing some younger talent and stuff and, and, and I do think that you just sometimes need that that voice mm. from the outside yeah. who's in your team Exactly. Like, you know what I mean? They're, yeah. they're on your side, they're totally with you, but they can just be that voice that's outside of your own head. Yeah. And sometimes they're telling you stuff that you know you need to hear, but it just yeah. takes someone else to say it to make you to make you understand it. And, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting that you, you, you pick up that kind of like the peaks and troughs thing, because I even think in this whole like Instagram world of which we now exist, mm. and I have it, do you know what I mean? Like you'll post a picture of, you know what I mean, I'll be in Ibiza next weekend, I'll be at Eden or I'll be whatever, and you're posting that picture of like, look, check me out, fucking headline in Eden or whatever. But then like the following Tuesday, I'll probably be in a shitty bar somewhere playing. Yeah, like, yeah. 12 people yeah. and it's like okay only maybe only they remember like the Eden gig but I still have to turn up for that out of the gig and get paid and like exactly. I need to earn my money and like and again I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that gig mm. but it's like the picks and troughs thing is that you still have to deal with that yeah. as the artist as the DJ um, to, to like you used to have to deal with those ups and downs is what yeah. I'm trying to say really and you do need a certain amount of mental fortitude because I found like I, I'm, I'm very, like I'm not really a drinker at all and I've never done drugs and my buzz genuinely always came from music that yeah. was my buzz so I would get like exceptional highs on stage and then I would get exceptional lows the next day yeah. um, and Suicide the, Tuesday I call it <laughs> you, know what, you know what that, that, that's <laughs> a really good way of putting you, it because you do those gigs like you do those like, the, the Thursday, Friday, Saturday or the Saturday, Sunday or even yeah. Saturday, Sunday, Monday or like whatever and then suddenly and don't get me wrong I'm glad I don't go to work on a Tuesday morning mm. or, or work on a Tuesday morning but 
suddenly everyone else is gone. Mm. You're sometimes on your own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've had this weekend of like madness wherever you've been and people and like parties and whatever. Then suddenly it's just half ten on a Tuesday morning and no messages on your phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you're sat in front of a computer screen trying to like get a kick drum that you like the sound of. That's the thing. And, like, like you're in the in the cave, you know. <laughs> and, then, yeah. and it just all gets a bit like I don't want to be alone. <laughs> exactly. No, you, you're absolutely <laughs> right. And I had to learn like real mental strength to be able to deal with that and I can deal with that fine now it's it's not a problem at all yeah. and that then translates I'm able to use the mental skills that I've acquired over the years that helped me to deal with that to deal with for example if a track doesn't connect the way I, I, I had expected it to or hope it does because yeah. sometimes the tracks just, that we just, expect to are not the big ones it's the ones we don't yeah. expect are huge or, or, or even know? just a straight up rejection you know what I mean when, yeah. when a label or an A&R just says no yeah, and you're like no man that, no, this is the one and they're yeah. like nope yeah. and you're like and I mean, if it's happened once, it's happened a thousand times, you know, and it's, and it's never going to stop happening because the number of times, even within the label, within my own label, where there's stuff that I thought is the best thing I've ever done, the label just, they, no, same thing. And do you know what? It's funny because when I listen back to a lot of that stuff, sometimes I mean, I have a rejection folder kind of on, on the computer. Yeah. And sometimes I go back and listen to the old stuff in it. Nine times out of ten or even more, they were right. I was just too close to the record. Yeah, too and, close. And, to I it. mean, it's it's something that um, at the Utah Saints, like Tim and Jez used to say all the time, is like, you never finish a record, just mm. get sick of it. That's true. You know, yeah. to the point where you just, you just, or someone has to go. Someone stops you and says, just, just stop. Enough. Yeah. Enough. That that is where it's at. Yeah. Changing that sweep or that hi hat isn't gonna. Yeah. Make it, you know, the record that it is or it isn't. Exactly. Like, it's, it's, it's done, guys. Like. Yeah. <laughs> walk away. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, a super interesting. Right. I'm going to finish the podcast the way that I finish every podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, it basically get you to curate your dream gig. Mm, okay. So what I'm going to ask you for is a venue. Now that can be a club, a bar, a stadium, a house, your mate's kitchen, a venue you've played, a venue you haven't played. It can have burnt down. It can. You can even just dream it up and describe it to us. It doesn't yeah. matter. But I want a venue that this gig's going to take place. Mm-hmm. Then I want three acts an opening act a middle act and a last act the way the reason I describe it like that is it's not a headline there's you know the last act isn't doesn't have to be the headliner yeah sure you've got three acts you can you can be on the bill you can be performing you can be playing at any one of those spots or you can just curate this as a show that you would like to go to okay um so I know I'm putting you on the spot there's no great rush but we're looking for the, the venue or the place this gig's going to take place. Right, well, you're not really putting me on the spot because <laughs> this is something that I visualise every day of my life okay. and have done for the last decade, probably. Okay. okay. So, the gig is... It's not a specific place, but it's a Madison Square Garden type venue. Okay. It's, it's that kind of shape. It's, a, it's this big, iconic venue somewhere in probably the states now because it's currently I suppose the dance music mecca but it doesn't have to be it's wherever is the hot spot at that time okay okay? and it's sold out and it has I mean we don't have time to go into the production because I have (laughs) I'm not joking I have this written down touch on it okay um there's projection mapping. Yeah. There is the use of holograms, yeah. right? I have an hologram alter ego on stage, right? So there's me and there's like this this conscience on my shoulder trying to divert me from entertaining crowd. 
through the use of smoke and mirrors, okay? okay. So you've this bad me trying to mess it up on the crowd and their enjoyment. So the crowd, straight away, the psychology is, a bit like I suppose a magician at work, but psychology is right, we've good John, and we've bad John, and we do not like bad John. It's the pantomime villain. Yeah. And we, now, bad John doesn't speak, he just does stuff on stage, yeah. okay? And at certain points, and again, I've figured out how technologically to do this, he's able to appear at the back of the crowd. So you physically get the crowd to move, and there's stuff happening on the screen through projection mapping that's really immersive, that's directing the crowd in a particular way. And this is all, I mean, there, there would be certain synced musical set pieces. I'm not about pre-planning a set, yeah. but there would be certain yeah. points in the yeah. set where I... So, so again, the music is going to reflect what's going on. It's atmospheric, it's almost film scorish at, at certain points. I'm starting and finishing the night because my background... I, I did so many warm-up gigs for big DJs over the years. Yeah. I know I'm I'm really good at that, and I always enjoyed it. Yeah. So I want to warm up for myself. Yeah. I want to do this, like nine-hour expansive show okay. which has this interactive element it has all the bells and whistles but ultimately it comes down to me and it sounds like a cliche but it is a musical journey and musically I want to take that crowd from where I started yeah. not necessarily in chronological order okay. but in musical order in terms of building a vibe and then yeah. you have your pigs and your trucks yeah. but from like this expansive thing that reflects the music that shaped me as a DJ, where I'm producer, where I am now at this moment in time. So at some point, there could well be a snippet of Dire Straits' Sultans of Swing in nice. there. There might well be the riff from ACDC Thunderstruck. Yeah. And I don't care if people think that's cheesy or not. It's this not is going to be about the show. And I've never cared about what people thought in terms of that. Because ultimately, good music wins through. And a show. And I'm there to entertain at the end of the day. Yeah. And I'm there to entertain the people in front of me, not me. Yeah. And if I can do that, I've done my job. And I feel gratified. Yeah. And the people who are there in any crowd are the people who are ultimately responsible along with myself but they're the ones who allow me to do my hobby as a job and yeah. I'm eternally grateful to them for that and I, I really mean that like I have so much gratitude for the people who enjoy and believe in what I do so I mean team around me but but the people the, the, the bums that are on seats so to speak they're the ones that allow me to do this yeah. and that is the greatest gift on a professional level that anyone could ever give me so it's a, the thing is a huge thank you to them cool. and it's you know it's like we did this together we're still doing this together it's just this big celebration of where we all are and I just know it would be the world's greatest show it would be the best thing that ever happened and then we'd tour it then we'd tour it you know? <laughs> we'd tour the then shit then we'd go on it. the road and it's every stadium in the world and it's David Guetta who? well I think that's I think that's my A my favourite answer to that question so far in the podcast and B certainly the most thought about from your point of view well I mean I can I can physically picture this I don't even have to close my eyes I know what this looks like I know what the colours are I know what the lights do I have a timeline which is constantly developing at home that has developed over the last 10 years that this show well, my only what it does when it does to my, the minute my only request John please is that when this happens I have an invite Look, maybe, maybe a sneaky plus one. Look, not I only want, that, I want to be there. we got to do the backstage want to, interview I, I, from that. I, I, you know? I want to be there. John, we could have, I believe, literally spoken until 8, 9, 10 o'clock at night. And I'd be um, happy to. But <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for um, speaking to me. 
Um, it's been nice to meet you. Thank you, ma'am. The pleasure's all mine, Felix. Thank you so much for your time. And I'm sorry we were a little bit limited by time. If you ever want to do it again, let's do it. We'll do it. I know I talk a lot. No, no, we'll do a part two. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you, sir. Well up for it. Thank you so much. Felix Leiter's In The House. The podcast about DJs, what they do and who they are.